Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Gennier on TalkShoe. Tonight is Friday, February 24th, 2012. Praise Yahweh. And thank you for listening. This is the last installment of our series on, of presentations on the prophecy of Hosea. Throughout the prophecy, we have seen a common theme, which is also common in the other biblical prophets, that the children of Israel were about to suffer a great calamity and were being cast off from the kingdom and polity of Yahweh their God because of their sin, but that they had a promise of a later reconciliation in Christ is absolutely manifest. Here in these last chapters, Hosea continues with that same theme, allowing us to further reflect upon much of what has already been presented these past few weeks. And although his words are quite foreboding, he ends his message with a message of hope, a hope which we still bear to this very day. So I will commence with Hosea chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and follows after the east wind, and he daily increases lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, it is explained that Israel's national sin was related to Israel's desire for foreign trade, where it says, For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, the other nations, that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Hosea 3.1 and I'll read from the Septuagint, also elucidates this very thing. And Yahweh said to me, Go yet and love a woman, the woman representing Israel, that loves evil things, an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, and they have respect to strange gods and love cakes of dried grapes. The children of Israel, having respect for the strange gods of the other nations, dealing with those nations. That's a concept that will be repeated here. Loved the exotic goods of the other nations and sought their trade. Hosea chapter 8, verses 4 through, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 11. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Here we see that Ephraim feeds on the wind and follows after the east wind. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the nations as a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. For they are gone up to Assyria a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yeah, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them. And they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the kings and princes. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin, altars shall be sin unto him. 
And as Paul said later of those same people, the Scythian Israelites of the dispersion and the other nations, the other Israelite nations, as Paul said of Israel according to the flesh, as he calls them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the things that the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And it's said of Ephraim that he made altars to sin, and therefore his altars shall be sin to him. Ephraim sought out trade and discourse with Assyria and with Egypt and with the other nations. And therefore Yahweh punished Ephraim by giving the nation over to Assyria and back into the captivity that was suffered anciently in Egypt. Ephraim sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Ephraim feeds on that wind, the trade winds, and does not look to Yahweh his God for sustenance. We were told to be a separate people. Being a separate people precludes the idea of trading with the other nations. Today, China is our Assyria. The world is our Egypt because we forsook Yahweh's commandment to be a separate people. We are held captive by Mystery Babylon, the great satanic international mercantile beast system because we sought the trade of these heathen peoples, thereby respecting the false gods of those peoples. When you accept a person into your communion, you accept that person's God. That's why John the Apostle warned that if one comes to us bearing not the doctrine of the Christ, that we are not even to welcome that person to John 9 to 11. Hosea 12, 2. Yahweh has also a controversy with Judah. Judah's never out of scope here, even though Judah's not being punished at this time. And will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. We see Judah is not out of scope, but that Yahweh would deal with Judah separately. The reference to Jacob is a reminder that all of Israel, Ephraim and Judah, were to be punished for their iniquity. Verse 3, he, meaning Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yeah, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke with us. The name Jacob comes from a Hebrew phrase, which means heel holder, or allegorically, supplanter one who supplants. The name was initially given to Jacob because of the circumstances of his birth, described in Genesis 25, verses 25 and 26, where it says, And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came out his brother, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel the imagery being that Jacob wanted to come out first, that Jacob was trying to pull Esau back. He was trying to supplant Esau. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them, when, when, when Rebekah bore them. 
much later in the lives of Jacob and Esau, and after Jacob had taken his blessing, taken Esau's blessing, in Genesis 27:36, we read that Esau said this, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Because the name Jacob may mean supplanter, when Jacob received the blessing from his father, Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, supplanter? Esau then plotted to kill Jacob for what had happened. Because he saw that Jacob had supplanted him. Yet Esau should have realized that Jacob's supplanting of him in the birthright and the blessing was providential because of his own actions resulting from his demonstrated contempt for his birthright and his blessings. He had contempt for them, so he lost them. Jacob was not really to blame for Esau's losing these things. Esau himself was to blame. Jacob had power over the angel and prevailed. In Genesis chapter 31, when Jacob was in Syria, an angel of Yahweh appeared to him and told him, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowed a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the, cat, unto the land of thy kindred, meaning the land of his parents and his brother. In Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob had departed the house of his father-in-law and went south to the land of Canaan, he knew that he was about to meet his brother, Esau, who years ago had conspired to kill him. This is evident in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. Jacob, fearing that his brother would attempt to perform this vow, entering into the land after a long absence, had first split his camp up in fear of meeting his brother Esau. Doing this, Jacob, traveling between the two camps, was left alone. Here is the rest of the account from Genesis chapter 32, from verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And there he wrestled, a man with him, until the breaking of the day. And when he, the man, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his, uh, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint and he, as he wrestled with him. And he, the man, said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I'm sure by that, Jacob meant that he wouldn't let him go, lest there be retribution. Having a blessing from the man would assure Jacob that there would be no retribution. And the man said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him, 
and said, Tell me, I pray thee, by name. And he said, Why is it that you ask for my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the, ro- the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he, the angel, the man, touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Jacob prevailed with God, as the text in Hosea says, because Jacob had the favor of God. Like a child prevails with his father, Jacob was granted the favor of God because Jacob, obeying his parents, sought God's will in guiding his own life, as opposed to his brother Esau, who despised his birthright, who despised the promises to his fathers, and sought after his own pleasures. We are not told much about the angel, which is simply the word for messenger, and is translated messenger elsewhere in that same chapter. Evidently, the angel tested Jacob, and Jacob arose to the test, therefore even prevailing over the angel of God. Regardless of what one wants to think about the angel, Jacob had feared seeing Esau, and here Jacob is tested even beyond those fears, but he prevails because he had the favor of God. The angel indeed had the power to defeat Jacob. The angel merely touched Jacob's thigh and put it out of joint. Yet Jacob did not relent in his struggle, and that is how Jacob prevailed over the angel. The lesson is, I believe, a message to Jacob that no matter what odds he faced, he would prevail so long as he put up a fight. because he had the favor of God. Yet, even with the favor of God, giving up the fight was not an option. Jacob prevailed because he continued the fight even when his leg was out of joint, which is a great disadvantage in a wrestling match. With that lesson, Jacob should have known likewise that because of that same favor that he would also overcome Esau. And therefore, he had no need to fear him. When we are tested, we are not tested as a lesson for God that he may see how we react to our trials. God needs no lessons from man. Rather, when we are tested, we are tested as a lesson to ourselves that we see how we fail or how we prevail. And we should learn to conduct our lives accordingly. Verse 4. I'll repeat verse 4. Yeah, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke with us. All of Genesis chapter 28 is instrumental in seeing just why Jacob had the favor of God and why Esau did not. At the end of Genesis chapter 27, after Rebekah helped Jacob obtain 
the blessing of the firstborn from his father, quite surreptitiously, a blessing which his father did still mean for Esau. Rebecca explains why she did it. That's when Isaac got it. At Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Esau had married Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Esau had already taken wives of the Hittites, and Rebekah knew that was wrong. Here we shall continue with Genesis chapter 28 and verse 1. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, which Esau had already done. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, my mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty shall bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So we see that Isaac realized the implications of Esau's having married Canaanite women and told Jacob explicitly that the promises to Abraham would pass to him if he indeed took a wife from his own people. Verse 7. And that Jacob obeyed his father and mother, very important, and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, Esau started to get it here. He didn't quite make it, though. Then Esau went unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth, to be his wife. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families, the Genesis 10, Adamic families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land for I will leave, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. 
And Jacob awoke out of his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in his place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first, the old Canaanite name for it. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then shall Yahweh be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Jacob obeyed his parents. He cared for his birthright. He did as he was told. He was told by his father that if he obeyed, he would receive the promises to Abraham. And he did. This validates Paul's assertions much later that Jacob alone, out of all the seed of Abraham, was the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. And he was. Esau, having race mixed, disqualified himself. Even having seen this, Esau took to his own devices rather than inquire of his father as to what he should have done. And so his failure continued because Ishmael was already explicitly excluded from the covenants. At Bethel, the promise which Isaac made to Jacob concerning the blessings of God were made immediately evident. We, like Jacob, must obey God if we desire to enjoy his blessings. If we disobey, we shall endure a much harder trial and be brought along a much more difficult path to repentance. We may have to wrestle with many angels. Hosea 12, verse 5. Even Yahweh, God of hosts, Yahweh is his memorial. Yahweh is Jacob's memorial in a sense of his continued offerings of favor toward Israel. Therefore, turn thou to thy God, Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Verse 7 is a little difficult, and we'll talk about it at length. It says, He is a merchant. The balances of the seed are in his hand. He loves to oppress. Surely that's not talking about Yahweh, our God. He is, and the King James Version is in italics. The Hebrew word for Canaan was originally from a root which meant to humiliate or to vanquish. Apparently, the word became synonymous with the idea of trafficking at some point in ancient Hebrew history. That alone should tell us just who the merchants of the earth truly are. Verse 7 here may mean more than what it appears to say, and I will read various readings from various sources. For the Geneva Bible, he is Canaan. That can't be talking about Yahweh. The balances of the seed are in his hand. He loves to oppress. From the Septuagint, 
as for Canaan. In his hand is a balance of unrighteousness. He is loved to tyrannize. From the New American Standard, Hosea 12.7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. The NAS, the New American Standard, is seemingly the most literal, but the pronoun whose is added, and it is not necessarily the most correct. The Septuagint, Brenton's Greek, is quite literal for the Greek translation, and correct. The overall, overall, the sentence seems to be ambiguous. However, that may be purposely so. It was the prospect of Jacob's mixing with the Canaanites, which his parents feared most. And here, in Hosea's time, the descendants of Jacob had begun to do that very thing, mixed with the Canaanites, and for trade, for commerce, the same way we've mixed with the Jews today in England, in France, in America, in Germany, for trade, for commerce. The same thing went on in ancient Israel with the Israelites and the Canaanites. That's what Jacob's parents feared most, that Jacob would mix with the Canaanites. Jacob knew better, obeyed his parents, and he received the blessings of Abraham. How many Esau's do we have in society today? Far too many. I leaned, therefore, towards the Septuagint reading, as for Canaan, who supplied the class of merchants at this time, or at least a prominent number of them. In his hand is a balance of unrighteousness. He is loved to tyrannize. We see that pattern in the Canaanite Jew who uses the proceeds of his merchandise every day to gain power over the rest of the world and rule it unrighteously. Here in Hosea, we see a promise of punishment for the children of Israel because they have done that. Hosea 12.8, And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. In all my labors, they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. And I, Yahweh thy God, from the land of Egypt, will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. Israel was to be a separate people. And for that, they would promise to obtain the endless blessings of God. Yet Israel turned to trade and intercourse with the despised peoples of the earth, as all the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations had already done. And therefore, Israel would lose all of the wealth it had gained in this manner. Israel became a merchandising nation. When it accepted the Canaanites, turned to idolatry, and then turned to trade with the other nations. 
the pattern which Hosea is laying out here. A merchant shall hardly keep himself from wrongdoing, and a huckster shall not be freed from sin. Sirach, Wisdom of Sirach 26-29. Israel would be made to live in tents, as they had done in the land of Egypt. The fulfillment of this prophecy was over the 1,000-year period to come, during which time the Cimmerians and the Scythians, children of Israel, lived in virtual poverty, as the Greek writers attested, as nomads on the steppe and in the forests of northern Europe. The very word Scythian seems to be an indication of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The word Scythian comes from a Greek word, Scuthus, plural in Greek, Scuthoi. The word was apparently not used by the Assyrians or the Persians, and it is not a native Greek word. And therefore the Greeks, who also called the Scythians at various times after the Assyrian word, Kimeroi, which is what the Cimmerians, well, where we get the word Cimmerians, or after the Persian word, Sakin, Sake, which is the Persian name for the Scythians, the Greeks must have gotten the word for the Scythians, Scythus, from the Scythians themselves, because it's not a native Greek word. It seems that Scyth, or Scuth, the ending alone, the OS, the ending of the word being Greek, the word skith or skuth can only come from the Hebrew word for tabernacle, which is sukkoth, the people calling themselves after their manner of dwelling. Verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And at this time, at this time in history, we have a wealth of recorded prophets around this very time. Isaiah, Amos, Jonah, and Joel were all right around the same time as Hosea. Micah and Nahum followed very shortly afterward, and they were followed shortly afterward by Habakkuk and Zephaniah. All of the other prophets came much later, and the ministries of the other prophets were centered either around the fall of Judah and Jerusalem, which we see in Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, or the return and the 70 weeks remnant kingdom, which we see with Obadiah, Malachi, Zechariah. Yahweh raises prophets as he sees a need to warn the people. There were prophets in the time of David and Solomon aside from the well-known Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. However, either their works were, works were not committed to paper in their name, or we simply do not have their writings today. And, and most of them did and were said to have had books. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, alongside Samuel, mentions the book of Nathan the prophet and the book of Gad the seer. And so those... Two early books of the prophets we do not have with us today. 
But these prophets from right around the time of Hosea, we have many of their writings. And Yahweh says, I have spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Verse 11. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yeah, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. The sacrifices, by this point, would do the nation no good. Its punishment for its iniquity is assured. And there is no help except for any mercy which Yahweh their God may offer them in captivity. Verse 12. And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. This is another reference to Genesis chapter 28. It's another reason why reading this and seeing why Israel was being punished, we must first look to why Jacob was considered worthy of the favor of God in the first place. And the solution is found only in a return to that original behavior. Jacob obeyed his parents. Jacob followed the way of God. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from out of heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Our father Jacob found favor and obedience to God and to his parents. Honor thy father and thy mother, so that thou shalt have long life upon the earth. We must do likewise, and Hosea is our warning once again. For we too, like the Israel of Hosea's time, have become a nation of whores for the commerce of aliens, for the commerce of the Canaanites. And we are in danger once again of losing our national identity, and our heritage because of our whoredom. If you don't believe it, go to Philadelphia, go to New York City, and take a look at the streets. Go to Washington, take a look at the streets. Verse 13. And by a prophet, Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return to him. Israel was delivered from the captivity in Egypt through the hands of Yahweh's prophet Moses, and preserved in the land of Canaan through the hands of Yahweh's prophet Joshua. Now Israel is being delivered into Assyrian captivity, and is warned by the hand of Yahweh's prophet Hosea. The idea of bitterness in Hebrew, was used metaphorically of rebellion. Therefore, the beginning of verse 14 may be rendered, Ephraim provoked to anger most rebelliously, not bitterly. Therefore, his sin will be evident. And the Assyrian, his new lord, that word being Adon, and not, well, well not the... the word usually translated Lord in the Old Testament is the Tetragrammaton, the name of Yahweh. Here it is Adon, and it refers to the Assyrian, his new Lord. 
The Assyrians shall be the rod of Yahweh's anger. As we read in Isaiah 10, verses 3 through 5, And what will you do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. The words of God. Hosea chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he ascended in bow, he died. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the sight of Yahweh, and he shall lift you up. Submitting oneself to the will of God, that is true humility. When we submit ourselves to Yahweh God, he exalts us. When we rebel against his word, he humbles us. Israel was a great nation because it was a just nation. And a just nation is a nation that is obedient to God, not a nation that is just in its own eyes. When Israel went off into sin, it degenerated. The American experiment today is also a failure for that very reason. And now it too is in degeneracy. A nation, both great and immoral, the idea that we can have a nation both great and immoral is a Jewish creation, and it cannot last. You cannot have a great society in immorality. It will no longer be great, but rather it will destroy itself in its sin. Immorality is satanic and destroys every nation which experiments with attempts to give it legitimacy. I wrote in my article, Philadelphia, that Jeffersonian liberalism held the ideal that a God-fearing Christian nation could govern itself. Humble yourself before God and he shall exalt you. Therefore, it should be free of the tyranny of either church or monarch or oligarchy, which we're under now. Jewish liberalism has taken God out of the nation, and it's imposed a tyranny that either church or monarch could only envy. In a God-fearing nation, people generally govern and police themselves, and there is no need for tyranny. And a free and a just society flourishes. In a degenerate and immoral nation, where sin is upheld by the law, and so-called rights for deviance and aliens are legislated into existence, tyranny naturally results, because those so-called rights are unnatural and have to be forced upon the people. In the modern world, a police state is the inevitable result of a degenerate state. That's why we have a police state today, because we have accepted the degenerate state. 
Verse 2. And now they sin more and more. It's like a snowball going downhill. And have made themselves molten images of the silver and idols. According to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. The molten calves and other idols of paganism are only representations of the foul practices that accompanied the pagan religions. The results of these sins are evident in Hosea chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, which I will repeat, where it says, And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah shall also fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Blow ye the cornet in Gibeah, and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth Haven. After thee, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I have made known that which shall surely be. One result in following the idols of the other nations was the begetting of strange children, the products of race mixing. Here we see that Gibeah is also mentioned. At Hosea 10.9, it is written, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah, against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. The battle of Gibeah was begun when the tribe of Benjamin defended the immorality of certain men of Belial, race mixing and sexual immorality. These are the sins which idol worship led the children of Israel off into. Today, we as a society mass-produce our idols, and we set them up all over our houses. We don't see it as idol worship, but it is. When we follow the behavioral patterns which the idols represent, we sit in front of the television or in the theater, and we absorb all of the ungodly filth that comes from the Jews who control the entertainment and media industries. They are the new bow priests. They condition us into accepting, even to the point of defending, race mixing and other point forms of sexual immorality, like the children of Benjamin did at Gibeah. They push every form of deviancy off on society, as if the behavior were normal. They promote the most degenerate people as stars and lure the minds of our children away from us. Wherever we allow these modern-day bow priests into our homes, we shall have degeneracy of one form or another being promoted to us and to our families. The word culture itself has the word cult at its core. 
properly, the word cult is not a bad word. Properly, the word cult describes a particular form of religious worship, no matter what form it is. And you cannot develop a culture without a common religion. Moral degeneracy is the new bowel religion for pop culture. And pop culture is Jewish in nature. The Jews took God, Jewish liberalism took God out of the nation, replaced it with humanism. Humanism opened the way for situation ethics, for subjective morality. instead of a definite morality. The Jews who control Hollywood and the rest of the media and entertainment industry, they brought us pop culture. Godlessness is their religion. Jewish godlessness is destroying Christendom. In ancient Israel, Jeroboam had instituted the idolatrous religion of the golden calves, so that he could maintain political power in Israel. And he appointed Baal priests out of the scum of the land to maintain it. Today, the nature of change in our religious practice as a nation is far more subtle. And organized Christianity has been turned into a Baal religion gradually, through legislation, through tax incentives, through the gradual infiltration of academia, through a corruption of the seminaries, through a corruption of the fundamental literature which was achieved because the Jews had come to control most of the publishing industry, and through the promotion of the scum of the land, can you say John Hagee, into its most prominent positions. Those who would go along with the promotion of the Jews and their godless, immoral agenda the Schofield Bible, the Bullinger Bible, drastically changed the attitudes of Christians towards favoring the accursed Jews who were rejected soundly for 19 centuries and brought them away, brought Christians away from the true message of Christ. These are but two examples of how major Christian sects were infiltrated and turned into a modern-day Baal religion. Christianity has been corrupted, mainstream Christianity, and therefore the new bow worship, pop culture, has become the dominant lifestyle. The Jews, who were behind the usurpation of our economy in 1913, were behind the usurpation of Christianity at the same time. If they did not usurp Christianity... If they did not change the state religion, the religion of the people, they would not have been able to stay in power. Just like Jeroboam. He taught them that lesson. Or perhaps they taught it to him. There will be no healing of any Christian nation until the television, the movies, the magazines, the newspapers, the pulp novels, and anything else that promotes decadence 
and the new Baal worship are gone from the homes of Christians everywhere. We must cast off our idols before we can ever expect the mercy of our God. Hosea 13.3 Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the dew, the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Israel will be punished severely. However, they will not be destroyed altogether. There is still the promise of restoration, which was iterated in Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said to them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Hosea 13.4 Yet I am Yahweh, thy God, from the land of Egypt. And thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Yahweh is our Savior. There is no other. Yahweh our God is Yahshua Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. The Apostle Thomas looked at the resurrected Christ and knew this immediately, addressing him as my Lord and my God. Yahshua Christ is both the root and the branch of Jesse, both the creator God and God incarnate as a man. Isaiah 43, verses 11 and 12. I, even I, am Yahweh. Beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God besides me, a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. The reference to all the ends of the earth is only a reference to the fact that the people of God were to be spread to all the ends of the earth. It still doesn't include the other peoples. This was expressed in the providence of God long before it actually happened, as early as Deuteronomy chapter 33, where Moses says, that his glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. Speaking of Joseph. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. The prayer of Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. 
There is none as holy as Yahweh, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Which Paul tells us later, the rock in the desert was indeed Christ, not meaning the stone, but meaning God himself. Talk no more, so exceedingly proudly, let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. In other words, have humility subjecting yourself to God. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out for themselves bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren has borne seven, and she that has many children is waxed feeble. In other words, we will overcome those who outnumber us. Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he has set the world upon them, speaking allegorically. He will keep the feet of his saints, he will keep the feet of his saints, nobody else. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. And Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The references being only to the children of Israel who are collectively his anointed. Jeremiah 30, verse 11, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, where I have scattered thee, and the full end shall be made of all of them. That's the word of God. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. The fulfillment of these things is now and has been over the last 20 centuries. It is the Saxon and Celtic peoples who were ancient Israel scattered among the Adamic nations, the old nations of Asia and Europe. And it is they who returned to God in Christ. It is their recovery and restoration to him, which is the theme throughout this prophecy of Hosea. It is our promise that when we follow him, when we submit ourselves to him, that we shall be exalted, and that then he will destroy all of those who oppose us and who oppose his will for us. In the end, we shall indeed be a separate people because he has promised to make a full end of all the other nations a promise which is repeated many times in Scripture, Obadiah 1.16, as I just read it in Jeremiah chapter 30. Hosea 13, verse 5. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought, according to their pastures, so they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted, therefore they have forgotten me. In good times... We readily forget about our God. In good times, 
We seek profligacy and wantonness. We do it all the time. In hard times or in times of crisis, only then do we see calls for prayer and repentance. This is our most common form of hypocrisy as a people. If we had the humble and repentant attitude all of the time, we would not be so readily let off into sin. When you're doing good, it's hard to be humble. Hosea 13:7 Therefore I will be unto them as a lion as a leopard by the way will I observe them I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and I will rend the call of their heart and there I will devour them like a lion the wild beast shall tear them All of our wars and all of our other travails which we have suffered throughout our history are due to our national disobedience and our rebellion from our God. These things are a natural result of the ungodly path which our ancestors had taken long ago. Verse 8, verse 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me, in Yahweh, is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou said, Give me a king and princes. A reference to Samuel when the children of Israel demanded a king from Samuel. I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. Our ancient ancestors rejected Yahweh our God as their king. They sought an earthly king. We have it now documented in our history that no matter what government of man we set up, it becomes corrupt because man cannot fashion a perfect government. We are taught to believe that theocracy is oppressive and that is a Jewish teaching so that the Jew can rule over us. We must learn from all this from these last 4,000 years of history that Christ is king and he is our only hope from the challenges which we face this day. Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. The words the place are an interpolation of the King James translators. Again, they are in italics. He shall not stay long in the breaking forth of children. Here we shall read two alternate versions of this verse, the New American Standard and Brenton Septuagint, which is a fair translation of the Greek in this instance. The NAS. The pains of childbirth have come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Hosea 13, 13 from the Septuagint. Pains, as of a woman in travail, shall come upon him. He is thy wise son. Because he shall not stay or abide in the destruction of thy children. Ephraim, the name standing for the Israelites 
of the northern tribes of the divided kingdom, had been destroying his children with idolatry. Here, with either reading, there was a promise that Ephraim would be forced to cease from this behavior, that his children are not destroyed. The promise of future children for Israel is seen in Isaiah 66, 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in a day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. The children of Israel in Isaiah are all the tribes of the dispersion, which soon after appear in European history as the Parthian and the Scythian and the Cimmerian and the Saxon Germanic people. Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Yahweh will do away with death and the power of the grave. Where the King James Version has repentance, the NAS has compassion, and the Septuagint Greek has consolation, paraclesis. However, here the subject is not Israel, but death and the grave, Yahweh doing the speaking. This, too, is both a messianic prophecy and a promise of restoration to Israel. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, who were descended from Israelites dispersed long before Hosea's time, said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 58. So when this corruptible, this corruptible body, shall it put on incorruption, and this mortal shall it put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks to God, which, give us, which gives us the victory through our Prince Yahshua Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of Yahweh, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, in Yahweh. Hosea 13:15. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, meaning Ephraim, an east wind shall come. The wind of Yahweh shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all the pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. This is an immediate prophecy concerning ancient Israel and its destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. Today we see that we are once again in the same state of decadence. And while we still have a hope of salvation and a, an even stronger hope 
than our ancient ancestors did. We cannot take for granted that we shall not suffer a similar and sudden destruction for these same sins which we are committing today. We are told in the Revelation that Mystery Babylon, which is indeed the world system of commerce, as Revelation chapter 18 proves, controlled by our satanic adversaries, Mystery Babylon shall fall in an hour. For that reason we are warned, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you not receive of her plagues. Revelation 18.4. Reading from 2 Corinthians 6.14 from the Christogenia New Testament. Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light toward darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless, the people of other races. They are the lawless. They do not have his law written in their hearts. They are in darkness. They will never be in the light of Christ. They are Belial. They are of mixed seed. They are the faithless. They do not share in the faith of our father Abraham. They cannot have our faith. They might have some faith, but they can't have our faith. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh. We have that spirit imparted to Adam. They don't have it. Just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account... Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince. And do not be joined to the impure, the other races. And I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father. And you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, accomplishing sanctity in awe or in fear of Yahweh. If we do those things, we have a promise that we won't suffer the punishments when mystery Babylon falls. Those same punishments which our ancient Israelite ancestors because they participated in the same sins that we're participating in today that they were punished for. Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto Yahweh thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Our destruction is the natural result of our sin. Verse 2, take with you words and turn to Yahweh. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Very much like 
the scripture I just quoted from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which, in which Paul was quoting Isaiah. Both the Septuagint Greek and the North American Standard rendered the Hebrew word here for calves, metaphorically, as fruit. The phrase may be a double entendre. It may also refer to the calves, which were idols in Israel. That if Yahweh were to remove our iniquity, that his people... would they also remit to him by removing the idolatry from their mouths? So we will render the calves of our lips. We will take those calves off of our lips since our iniquity is taken away. His promise to remove iniquity is found in Christ. Once we, being children of God, if indeed we are children of Israel, accept Christ and follow him, then we have no sin, as the apostles John and Paul both told us that even if we do sin, as all men sin occasionally, that sin will not be imputed to us, because with our flesh we may sin, and we are all weak, and we all do on occasion sin. But with our hearts, we choose and, and strive to seek after Christ. Hosea 14.3 Asher shall not save us, we will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. Of course, idols have no power to grant either salvation or mercy. Verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him, meaning from Ephraim. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. Lebanon was at one time a much more fertile place than it is now. In the ancient epic of Gilgamesh, a piece of literature which is easily 4,000 years old, Lebanon is described as a vast and thick forest of cedars stretching all the way to the seacoast from Babylonia, from, from the outskirts of Babylonia. The biblical phrase, cedars of Lebanon, made a lot more sense then than it does now because it was a very thick and expansive cedar forest. And because it was a thick and expansive cedar forest, it must have had a very pleasant odor, naturally. And then seeing that vision, this verse would make a lot more sense. By the time the Romans came, most of the cedars of Lebanon were long gone, used for shipping. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. 
And we also see Israel at the very end in Revelation chapter 22 compared to a, a fruitful tree by the river, the tree having 12 manners of fruit, 12 types of fruit, evidently one type for each tribe. But they're all Israelites and they're all white Adamic people. This happened. Ephraim shall say, what have I any more to do with idols? I have heard him and observed him. This happened in history when the Germanic tribes accepted Christianity. And it especially happened with the Reformation when the idols of Roman Catholicism were done away with. It took 2,000 years to accomplish this prophecy, but it happened. Verse 9. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of Yahweh are, are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Destroy the body, that the spirit may survive in the day of Christ. We have hope in Christ. We only have hope in Christ. We have no other hope. For many centuries now, under our own monarchies, and then later in this age, in this recent age, under the illusion of self-government, because that's what it's become, everything that we have done, no matter how brilliant our leaders, no matter how brilliant our rulers, everything that we have done has been infiltrated and corrupted by those eternal enemies of God known today as Jews. We return to Christ, or we fall with the Jew, because the Jews and all of the enemies of Yahweh our God and all of the goat nations are on a path to perdition, and perdition they shall find. We only have one solution. It's not Ron Paul. Obadiah, Chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. I'll read it from the New American Standard Edition, since they correctly render that word goyim. For the day of Yahweh draws near on all the nations. As you have done it, it will be done unto you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, his holy mountain being the people of Israel, Zion is representative of the people of Israel. All the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. The children of Israel are Mount Zion. They will escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. And all those other nations, they will become, Obadiah 1.16, as if they had never existed, for Yahweh has spoken. Exterminationism brought to you by God. Thank you for listening. I will be here next week. I think that I will do 
the epistles of Peter for my next presentation. I will be here tomorrow night with Pastor Mark Downey, Kinsman Redeemer Ministries. We will be talking about universalism and about false brethren. Praise Yahweh and good night.